Thank y'all so much, man. I just I love going to church with y'all. I gotta say, I I just I just love going to church at Faith Covenant, man. I don't, I'm, I know I'm the paid salesman to say that, but man, I tell you, I I do love it so so much. I'm so grateful for y'all, and we're gonna talk about the great things that gratitude is gonna bring into your life. And let's be honest, it's gonna be a little bit harder this year to be grateful. I don't know if you knew this or not. A Thanksgiving meal with all the trimmings is expected to cost 20% more than it did last year because of inflation. In fact, according to the American Farm Bureau, since they started keeping statistics back in 1986, this will be the most expensive Thanksgiving meal we've had to date. The Farm Bureau says the average cost of the holiday meal is going to be up $11 from last year. A 16-pound turkey costs $5 more than it did a year ago. And a dozen eggs have tripled in price since last year. Butter prices have nearly doubled. But good news, there is one item that has gone down in price. That's cranberries, right? As if anybody liked cranberries. You know, nobody cares. The cranberry, you know, it's like, no, I don't care. You know, cranberries are kind of like that relative that comes over for Thanksgiving. Like, if they're there, you don't miss them. If they're there, they're fine. But if, you, if they're not there, you don't miss them, you know? That's kind of like cranberries. You know, no, none of the kids be like, man, where are the cranberries? We, we, we want cranberries. And so think about this. With prices like these, it's going to be harder than ever when you're think, you know, trying to pray before dinner, trying to be thankful for the dinner. But you know, I want you to really think about that, though, for a moment. I mean, really. It kind of reminds me of a couple of boys that were out walking in the country one time. They decided to uh, cross a fence and cut across a pasture. And about halfway across, they saw an enraged bull charging toward them. They started running for the fence. And it was pretty soon as a parent, they weren't going to make it to the fence before the bull got to them. So, man, they're just running. And one of the boys said, John, John, pray for us, John, pray for us. And he said, I've never prayed out loud in my life. He said, John, you've got to pray. That bull's about to catch us. And he said, I'm just going to pray the prayer that I heard my daddy pray out loud at dinner. And he said, pray it, pray it. And he said, Lord, make us thankful for what we're about to receive, you know. <laughs> and, and, and as 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the apostle Paul said, be joyful always. And give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And if we're being honest, 2022, I look around the room today, many of you have had a tough, tough year. And uh, there are many people I know here today struggling to give thanks in your circumstances right now. There have been losses There have been heartaches, there have been sicknesses, there have been separations, there have been devastations. And you're saying, Les, how can I possibly give thanks in circumstances like these? I don't feel grateful. And if I start giving thanks when I don't feel grateful, I'll be a hypocrite. Let me say this, you're under no obligation to feel grateful. All right. I think that's so important to understand. You are obligated, though, it is God's will, Paul says here in his letter, to give thanks in every circumstance. And so God is not telling you to be thankful for your circumstances. He's telling you to look for ways to give thanks in your circumstances. And it's a remarkable expression of faith when you give thanks, even when you don't feel grateful. And I think that's so, so key for us to understand. You see, it's not hypocritical. It's critical to give thanks in all circumstances. 
Gratitude is so much more important to most of our lives than any of us realize. I don't know if you knew this or not, but some word of the, some form of the word thanks appears 68 times in your Old Testament. It appears 63 times in your New Testament. In fact, of the five offerings that were given in the ancient temple in Israel, one of them was a thank offering. The Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 4, he said, Don't worry, but learn to pray about everything and give thanks to God as you ask Him for what you need. Keep your minds thinking about whatever is true, whatever is respected, right, whatever is pure, whatever can be loved, whatever is well thought of. And if there's anything good and worth giving thanks for, then think about those things. Do you see what he's saying? That our thought life is so, so critical to the overall well-being of our heart, our mind, and our soul. Contrary to what some people say, you know, Christians are not people who have lost their minds. Christians are people who are actively changing their minds for the better. And if you know Christ as your Savior here today, I mean, you've been filled with God's Holy Spirit. You know, the Spirit wants to be changing the way you think for the better. In this way of thanks, this week of Thanksgiving, we need to be talking about this because Romans chapter 12, verse 2, the Apostle Paul says, Don't be conformed to this world. And we have a world around us right now that is just eaten up with dissatisfaction, with anger, disappointment, etc., etc. And it's up to us as the people of God to say, no, we're going to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, a new ideals, a new attitude, and we're going to be thankful. We're going to be a grateful people. One of the greatest truths in life is that it's not what happens to you that causes your emotions. It's what you think about after you've experienced something. That is what causes your emotions. And you have more control over your emotions than you think by what you think. And your emotions are your mind and your body responding to what you've been thinking. And think about the word thank. When we say thank you, what does that mean? It goes all the way back to the Latin word for think. In fact, in the old Anglo-Saxon, where our English comes from, all right, the word thankfulness actually was the word thinkfulness. All right? When we're thinking of all of God's goodness to us, it generates thanksgiving. It generates gratitude. When we say thank you, it really means I think of you. I will think of you in the future is what that means. And we say thank you. When we are grateful, when we are grateful people, it brings great things into our lives. This is so, so important for you and me to be grateful people. Okay? Even when things are rough. Things are bad to look around and be grateful. I was talking to a young woman yesterday in ICU, and she was going on and on about the things that she's grateful for. I was so challenged. She's laying there with tubes and things like that, and she was just talking about all the things that she's grateful for. If your prevailing mindset is gratitude, you're going to prevail in life. Parents, listen to this. A study was recently published in a research periodical called Applied Developmental Science. And they said this, that grateful parents tend to raise thankful children. No big shocker, okay? But they said this, researchers noted that when children saw their parents being grateful, doing things like writing thank you notes, 
talking about their daily blessings, being thankful even in times of difficulty, children who are raised in an atmosphere of gratitude soak in the attitude of gratitude, and it makes a deep impression on their hearts and their minds. And children who become more grateful are more optimistic. Children who are more optimistic are more resilient. They handle the tough times of life better, and the kids who are more resilient become more successful in life. And so if you want your children to succeed, ask God to give you a grateful heart. Now, the Apostle Paul, he wrote a letter called 2 Corinthians, what we call it. It was actually his fourth letter to Corinth, but it is his most personal letter. He wrote at a very vulnerable time in his life, and he spoke honestly about the profound physical punishment that he suffered in the name of Christ. He also tells us in this letter about a mysterious thing he calls his thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan that was sent to torment him. He also talks about the critics he was battling who said, you're not really a true apostle, you're just a poser. And so we have this letter that he wrote, and it's so transparent because he was trying to shore up this group of Christians in the city of Corinth because they were in crisis. Abuses were coming at them from the Jewish community and the Roman officials there in their city. There was a rampant sexual immorality in the church. They didn't really know exactly how to, how to handle this situation. And there were divisions and there were factions. They were kind of at each other's throats there in the church in Corinth. And it was an danger of breaking down. And what we have here is you have a discouraged church that's on, you know, teetering on the teetering on the edge of breaking down. And Paul begins to like open up his heart and say, hey, I'm going to share with you my life experiences and you know how I find gratitude even in the midst of great trials and difficulties. And what he's doing is he's telling them his prevailing mindset. How can you and I develop thankfulness? Even when times are so, so hard, what do we have to be thankful for? Michael already read the passage, so I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And as we read 2 Corinthians 1, I want you to think about the word comfort for a moment. All right? I want you to think about the word comfort. The first part of this passage, the Apostle Paul starts off. Chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. When we talk about comfort, what we mean is that God does so much more for us than just drain the pain. All right. This Thursday, we're going to eat comfort food, aren't we? <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm so excited. I mean, you think about sweet potatoes that are soaked in brown sugar, mashed potatoes that are just like soaked in butter, things like that. Think about pecan pie. Can we just be honest? That is not a pecan pie. All right, that is a, a mass of congealed Cairo syrup with pecans sprinkled on top, all right, to kind of give it the appearance of not being what it actually is. It, it's a syrup pie is what it is, and it is fantastic, all right? Can I just say, it's, it's amazing, it's incredible. And why is pecan pie such a big deal in Texas? I have a theory, 
It's because the Cowboys play every Thanksgiving, and you have to have something to comfort you when the Cowboys lose every Thanksgiving. And so you're going to watch this happen on Thursday when the Cowboys lose. The men are going to run to the kitchen to get a piece of pecan pie and try to get that rush of sugar to make that bad feeling go away. You know, <laughs> kind of like Paul Blart, Mall Cop. You know, just go away, pain, go away. You know, that kind of thing. And so you see that in verse three and four. We think about the word comfort. We tend to think in terms of subtraction, like you know, just take the pain away. When we want to comfort a child, we give them something sweet to eat and something to play with. Our problem is sometimes we can take that model of human behavior and we can impose it on our Father in heaven. You know, Lord, I'm so discouraged. Can I please have a cupcake and a big screen TV? You know, something like that. That's what we want. But to comfort does not mean drain your pain. Our English word comfort comes from two Latin words that means with strength. And you see that word comfort? Think about the word fort or fortress. All right? It's interesting. God's comfort is to deal with hardship by adding strength. Warren Wiersbe is a great theologian. He said this, God does not pat us on the head and give us a piece of candy or a toy to distract our attention from our troubles. No, He puts strength into our hearts so we can face our trials and triumph over them. See that word comfort that you see there in the Bible text, word paraclesis, is used eight times in a space of four verses. That word is used 30 times in this letter. It's amazing. It's a real muscular word. It means to, to make strong, to invigorate, to fortify, like fortified vitamins, you know, something like that. And it's with someone coming to your side to assist you, they're adding their strength to yours. You might remember the old days, you know, when you're lifting weights and, you know, like maybe, maybe you're in some kind of athletic team and you're in the weight room and you say, hey, I need a spotter. You're going to do the bench. You're going to do a squat or something like that. You might remember, man, you're, you know, you're, you're benching. You might say something like this. Hey, I want to go two past failure. And so somebody's spotting you and they're near to you and they, and you go out there and you, you ramp out eight and you say, okay, I'm going to try to get nine. And you start to try to get nine. You can't quite get there. And somebody just puts like just two fingers on the board. And uh, next thing you know, you're pushing that thing up, you know? And you say, okay, we'll go one more, one more, one more. You know, <laughs> you try one more, and you can only get it like, you know, maybe an inch off your chest, but they just kind of put two hands on it and lift it up, you know? That's this idea, paraclesis. See, life is going to take you beyond your limits. And what the Apostle Paul is saying, the God of all comfort, he adds his strength to yours when it does. In Ephesians chapter 5. The Apostle Paul said, don't be drunk with wine because it's going to ruin you, but be filled with the Spirit. Speak to each other as Christians. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making music in your hearts to the Lord. Again, I just I love being in church with y'all. It's so great. But then look at this. Always give thanks to the Father for everything. Do you see the command? Be filled with the Spirit. You see the course of action that you're supposed to take? Man, sing in your heart, praise the Lord, but give thanks to God. If you want to be filled with the Spirit of God, be a grateful, grateful person. You see God moving and working in your life. Gratitude will help you get there. Number two is the whole idea of community. Community. You see, the wider God makes you, the deeper you get. Look at verse 4. He said, Paul said, now that we've been comforted by God, the God of all compassion. Now we can comfort others with the trope, with the comfort 
we ourselves have received. This is really a powerful, powerful concept. Paul is saying here, one reason that you and I have problems is so that we can receive comfort from God. We receive his strength. And then we turn around and we give that same comfort, that same strength to others. And if you're a smart person, you might be saying, wait a minute, that doesn't really make sense. You're saying, I need trouble in my life so I can help somebody else with their trouble. How about if neither one of us has trouble, then everything's okay. We don't need to comfort each other. Think about this, though. I remember this kind of occurred to me years ago. You know, life is relationships. If there's anything that God cares about, it's your relationships. Your Heavenly Father wants this for you more than you'll ever know. For you, have, for you to have relationships that mean more to you than the world itself. You know, you're going to see, we're all going to see our biological family this week. And I love my biological family, almost all of them. And uh, my spiritual family, though, my spiritual family, my brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, my biological family, I'll have them with me as long as I'm on this earth my spiritual family I'll have with me for all eternity. And so that one is more important, and God cares about that one so, so much. What if none of us ever suffered and then never comforted our brothers and our sisters? What would our relationships be like? They would be so shallow, wouldn't they? So sterile, so dry. You see, none of us ever grows to be more like Jesus on our own. There's no such thing as a solo saint or a lone ranger Christian. We grow in Christ in the give and take of the body of Christ. In our relationships in the body of Christ, they grow in the give and take of the body of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul said this, Speaking in the truth and love, let us grow in every way into him or like him who is the head of the body, which is Christ himself. And from him, the whole body, the body of Christ, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for the building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. I want you to think about this for a moment. Who are some of your most trusted friends? I mean, the people you take a bullet for. They're people who've walked with you through a time of pain or hardship see suffering together and then comforting one another it just it just bonds you together like nothing else does and this shared experience is the glue that fuses us together into a a oneness a communion or a community you know i love reading the ends of paul's letters because at the end of every letter there's always this list of names of people that he's talking about or thanking God for. You know, for example, at the end of the book of Colossians, in Colossians chapter 4, he lists 11 names. Ten of them are men, one of them, are, one of them is a woman. But he says things like this, man, Epaphroditus, he is, he is wrestling in prayer for you. Uh, Tychicus, he has traveled so far and put his life in danger for you. Timothy is here with me, and you know, he's putting his life in danger just being here. And, you know, Aristarchus, you know, remind him to fulfill his ministry. You know, Nympha, thank Nympha for opening up her house to the church there at Laodicea. You know, he says things like that. And you just realize, man, these people, they love each other. They have been to battle together. And they deeply, deeply care for each other. 
You see, when comfort comes through other Christians, it not only builds the body, but it binds it together. It builds the body, and it binds it together. It happened to Paul. One occasion, he was arrested. They shipped him off to Rome, and the church at Philippi, they scrambled. They put together an offering, and they sent him money, and he was able to rent a house and go under house arrest rather than being put into a dungeon. And he wrote them a letter we call Philippians today, and he said this, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you. We went to battle together. You loved me. You comforted me. And now I give thanks to God upon every remembrance of you. And so one thing we can be thankful for today, sometimes terrible things happen, but we can say, God, thank you for the people who have come into my life, who have comforted me, who have encouraged me, who have strengthened me. You see, the wider you are, the more people you have in your life, all right, the deeper you get, the more those relationships challenge you and strengthen you and grow you to be more like Jesus. And so, yeah, we can be grateful even in the hard times because we know that what God is doing is he's deepening our sense of community with other people. The third thing is this. We can be grateful even in the hard times because we have a confidence that God is doing something in those hard times. You know, when we reach the point of giving up, sometimes that's the point, right? God wants to bring us to the point of grace where we hit rock bottom and the only place we have to look is up. And that's where he always wanted us to be. Paul said this happened. Look at verse 8. Michael already read this. He said, when we were in Asia, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. It was too much. It was too much. And I love his honesty here. We were being crushed. We had nowhere to turn. There was no escape route. And he said, look at verse 8, we despaired even of life. We felt the sentence of death in our hearts. That's an astonishing admission, isn't it, from an apostle? An apostle of Jesus, someone that's supposed to have great faith? And we gave up. (laughs) We gave up. Like, hey, it's been good knowing you boys. We resigned ourselves to our inevitable fate. We're going to die. Look at verse 9. This happened. (laughs) You ever thought about that word, happen? You know, how we use that word? What happened? Why did this happen? I don't know why it happened. It just happened. Ask our kids, what happened? I don't know. It just happened. Isaiah 14. Look at this up on the screen. The Lord of heaven's armies has sworn this oath. These things will happen exactly as I planned. They will happen exactly as I purposed them. And when the Lord of heaven's armies makes a plan, who can stop it? And when the Lord stretches out his hand, who can stop it? You know what Isaiah is telling us there, the Lord speaking through Isaiah, the prophet, is that in Christ there are no accidents. They're just appointments. It's hard to handle sometimes. Let's be honest. A lot of you here today have gone through some terrible, terrible things this past year. But I want you to think about this. Charles Stanley said this, God is in every tomorrow. So even though we do not know what will happen, he is already there. And it is his will that comes to pass. It might send a chill up our spines because sometimes terrible things happen. But God has a purpose, he says. God has a plan, he says. Even when terrible things just happen. 
And there are times in our life we say, God, what's the point? I don't even see why. What's the point of this? And the point is to reach the point of giving up. You see, the Apostle Paul says, when God was our only chance, he was our only choice, which was exactly where God wanted us to be. Look at verse 9 and 10. He said, this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And he has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. You see, Apostle Paul admits here that he had a glaring character flaw for someone who's supposed to be a Christian leader. What is it? Self-reliance. He thought too much of himself and his own strength, his own cleverness. And God brought a debilitating circumstance into Paul's life, and his outlook on life was irreversibly altered. He said, I thought I was a dead man. No hope for survival. But God miraculously intervened, and he saved me. And so now whether I live or die, I have this confidence that God has a purpose for it. And you know, we can be confident that everything that happens in our lifetime, in our lifetime, will affect our lifespan. I know I've said this before, but there's a huge difference between your lifetime and your lifespan. Your lifetime is your time on this earth. Your lifespan is what goes beyond your time on earth far, far, far into eternity, beyond the veil. Paul expounds on this idea again in this same letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You don't have to turn there. It's going to come up on the screen. But he said this, We know... We know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. You ever stop and think about that? One day, stand before the Lord, and you're going to be presented to Christ as a bride. One of my sons is going to get married here in about a month and a half, and we're so excited. I'm so excited for him because that day is going to come. Those doors are going to open up in the back of the church. She's going to come walking in. She's going to walk down the aisle. Everybody's going to stand up. What's being what's happening? She is being presented to him. And she'll be beautiful. She'll be radiant, just like you and I will be when we, the bride of Christ, are presented to our groom, the Lord Jesus, in all eternity. And he said, all this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Isn't that awesome? And I know that when Brady and Jen get married on that day, there's going to be thanksgiving in both of their hearts. I know Brady's going to be really, really thankful. Okay, I know he is. Why was this thanksgiving overflowing to the glory of God all over the world that Paul talks about? It's the gospel, the gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ, that because of what Jesus did for you on the cross, God is at work in your life, even beyond the boundaries of your lifetime. And the day will come that you will be raised from the dead. You'll be presented to Jesus as a beautiful bride. And everything that happens in your life is preparing you for a more glorious future. That's the confidence that we have. And the last thing is that there is a contentment that comes in the Christian life. Because you see, in Christ, you can have all that you've ever hoped for. You notice what he says in verse 10 there? On him we have set our hope. 
that He will continue to deliver us. What does it mean to set your hope on the Lord? Did you know what it means? Almost exactly in the Greek, in God we trust. Isn't that interesting? You know, we have that on our money. Back in June of 1955, Charles Bennett of Florida introduced a resolution in the House of Representatives, and it required that this inscription, in God we trust, appear on all of our paper and coin currency. Only since 1955. But why did he do that? He was a World War II veteran. And he knew that it was only because of God's grace and his strength that this nation had made it through. And he said this on the House floor. He said, nothing can be more certain than that our country was founded in a spiritual atmosphere and with a firm trust in God. And while the sentiment of trust in God is universal and timeless, these particular four words, in God we trust, are indigenous to our country. In these days, when imperialistic and materialistic communism seeks to attack and destroy our freedom, we should continually look for ways to strengthen the foundations of our freedom. Adding in God we trust to our currency will serve as a constant reminder that the nation's political and economic fortunes are tied to its spiritual faith, and you could say not its monetary strength. Think about this. His measure sailed through the House of Representatives on a voice vote. The Senate approved that measure three weeks later, and President Eisenhower signed it into law on July 11, 1955. And notice what he said. The, the condition of our house. The word economy, by the way, is the word from the Greek oikonomos, which means household. The condition of our household, he said, depends not upon our monetary strength, but upon our spiritual faith. You see, there are so many things that are enticing us to put our hope in them. And I don't know if you knew this or not, but there's another place where that phrase, set our hope, appears. Do me a favor and turn your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to kind of end on this today. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. Paul writes his young protege. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Wow. You ever think about what contentment is? What is contentment? Contentment is just a, 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 a serenity in your soul. It's like, I'm okay. All right? All I have is all I need because all I need is all I have, you know? That's what contentment is. Godliness with contentment is great gain. You know, Dave Ramsey is a financial guru. He speaks to about 13 million people in his radio program every week. Approximately 10 million people have gone through his course called Financial Peace University. And he's asked, what is the most important financial principle people need to follow for financial peace? And he said this, if you understand this concept, all the other concepts work. And until you implement it, none of the others work. The single most important financial success content, con, concept is content. Look at verse 7. 
We brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. You know, we all say that, you know, but do we live as if that's true? You know, we're not going to leave with anything. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Those who want to get rich, not those who are rich, those who want to, who want it so bad. <laughs> they fall into temptation and a trap. Many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, not money, the love of it, is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. You kind of get the language of what he's saying there. The people that love it, who are eager for it, who have to have it, they plunge into ruin and destruction. It's a terrible, terrible place to be. Why does this happen? Look at verse 11. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses in the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate, he made the good confession. What's the good confession? That Jesus is Lord. He is king. That's what Jesus said to Pilate. Are you a king? And he said, it is as you say. All right? He did that. That's the good confession. Jesus is king. It's nobody else and it's not me. Jesus is king. I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal, who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. Let it be. Let it be, he says. And look at verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in what? Don't set your hope which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Isn't it so true that the best things in life are free? The best things in life are free. They're freely given by our Father in heaven. You know, when he says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, you say, man, unless I've... I've watched The Real Housewives of Atlanta. I'm not rich, you know. You know, there are 2,000 billionaires in the world, but there are 8 billion people in the world. If you make $41,000 a year, you're in the top 3% of the world's income level. Half of the world's population, 4 billion people, get by on $2 a day. When you look at your Thanksgiving meal, and it costs $50 this year, that's a month's wages for most of the people in the world. Okay? And so, yes, the Lord has richly, richly blessed us. And I know for many of us here, this last year has been extremely difficult. But what is contentment? Contentment is a sweet serenity in your soul that says, God, it's okay. Thank you, Lord. 
Thank you, Lord. And you start looking around. Even though they might have this one big thing in the background, and you can't help but think about it, but you're looking around saying, Lord, thank you for him. Thank you for her. Lord, thank you for that. Lord, I bless you. I praise you. I thank you for all your benefits, for all your blessings. Truly, I am blessed. This is the attitude of gratitude, and these gratitude will bring great things into your life. It truly will. Let's bow our heads together this morning. We can just bow our heads for a moment, kind of quiet our hearts. I want to ask you to think about that important, important, critical need for contentment. And I want to ask you to stop and think for a moment. Are there some areas of your life where your discontent is really beginning to show itself and just break down your relationship with somebody else, your own spiritual life, your own heart, your own soul, just like a pebble in your shoe. There's that discontentment that you just, it just won't go away. And it's just beginning to wear down everything in your life. I just want to ask you to go before the Lord this morning and just ask the Lord to give you new eyes to see all the good things that he richly provides you for your enjoyment. And if there's been an area of your life you've been discontent, maybe it's your marriage, maybe it's your work, maybe it's uh, where you live, maybe it's what you drive. I don't know what it might be. I'll ask you to go before the Lord this morning and say, Lord, would you please give me a contented heart, a contented heart, and ask the Lord to open your eyes so that you can more clearly see all the things that he's blessed you with that you have to be grateful for today. And so, Father, we come before you today, and truly we are so blessed. Father, we are so, so blessed. You have been so good to us. And, Lord, I know there's some people here today who are struggling under the weight of the circumstances of their lives. And I just pray, Father, that you would just give them this extra measure of your grace and your Holy Spirit today. They might experience your contentment today. And, Lord, I just pray that you'd open up all of our eyes this week, Father, to all the good things that you're doing around us and for us and in us. And give us a sense of gratitude this week, really all year round, Father. Lord, give us contentment. We pray this for your glory today, Jesus. Amen. Amen.